0: Your pigs are having a blast. You know, we walked around <laughs> earlier, like they're happy pigs. They're running around. They're having a, having a ball.
1: Yeah, yeah, all of our animals. No, like, you no know, fence can hold them. <laughs> they've, li- yeah, <laughs> they don't <laughs> give a shit about fences. <laughs> <laughs> they live such a good life, and it really is our, our mission to just really like uh, just steward that. Like we care deeply for our animals. Um, we do care deeply for this land, and we've had people ask us, like you know given the the really difficult water realities here do you consider moving somewhere where perhaps there's more water and no it doesn't really cross our mind you know i i have a sense of loyalty to place and i feel like you you don't run away from your problems like you you dig in and you try and be a part of the solution and honestly like globally like you know you're not going to run away from problems it's just going to be a different problem in a different place
0: These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. SIG Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the SIG Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about SIG Sauer and its complete line of products, visit sigsauer.com. My hypothesis is that Those plants developed a toxin to warn animals not to eat them. Totally. Over thousands, millions of years. And uh, now people just do it for a thrill. (laughs) (laughs) And I sweat, like, so much if I eat, like, some ketchup is too (laughs) spicy. It's embarrassing. It's horrible. Uh. Okay. Kate Havstad. Is that uh, Danish, Norwegian? What Norwegian. A, Norwegian. Yeah. What's it mean?
1: Home by the sea.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's pretty beautiful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I lived in Occidental, California for most for my whole youth, yep. which is right on the coast. And then I went to school at UC Santa Cruz, and then I spent some time living in Vancouver, BC. I lived in Buenos Aires on the water. I feel like I've always lived on the water hmm. until I moved here.
0: And we're a ways from water here. <laughs> kind of.
1: You know, two, two and a half hours to get to water. No, three hours to get to water. There's rivers. or
0: some creeks and stuff. Yeah.
1: Yes. I definitely seek the rivers. Yeah. Uh,
0: I don't get to Central Oregon very often. And the way I drove today, I went through Fossil and some of that country. It was so beautiful. So beautiful. But coming out of, um, coming out of Heppner, you know, Heppner was settled like between 1870 and 1890 primarily by by Irish because it reminded them of home. A lot of immigrants mm. stopped in places that reminded them of where they were in Europe. Mm. So it's like green rolling hills. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's August right now. It's brown mm. rolling hills right now. But I was thinking about it from the perspective of pioneers mm. or early explorers. And you're coming across... You know, out of the Blue Mountains, um, which would not have been an easy crossing. And then you get into this nice rolling prairie that's just, Mm. you know, easy traveling, no big deal. And then all of a sudden, you see the central Oregon volcanoes with snow and ice on them that's been there for 2 million years anyways. Yeah. Like, oh my God, what are we going to get into? Like, it, how is this possible?
1: And just be like, well, I'll just stop here.
0: Right. <laughs> and then as you go, it, the land suddenly breaks up into the, all these canyons and buttes and plateaus. And you start seeing more volcanic rock. Um, and then you eventually get into this tremendous valley that you live in now that yeah. is like the center of a crown. You know, everywhere you look, mm. there's a volcano reaching up into the sky. And yeah, it's a tremendous place. But you're farming here, mm-hmm. and this isn't, this is high desert.
1: This is high desert. So, what does
0: that look like? What does farming in the high desert look like?
1: Well, I love, I have to say, I love your analogy about this being like the center of a crown, because this is being surrounded by um, everything we are surrounded by here feels very, uh, I feel very fortunate to live here, really. Um, farming in the high desert, what does that look like? Well, it's looked really different every year, to be honest. So I started farming with Chris in 2014 is when I joined his farm, which was previously Juniper Jungle Farm. And he was leasing land east of Bend, um, right up against the Badlands, actually, right before you were to hit the Badlands. And um, he had been farming for several years prior to when I showed up. In that first farm, Juniper Jungle... Uh, You know, he started on really just a few acres and was, you know, a market style gardener. So he's growing uh, vegetables, row crops, high intensity for CSA, farmers, markets, those sorts of things. And each year he just kind of kept growing more and more. And potatoes was actually the crop which was really the impetus for him to start scaling. He had gotten a wholesale contract to grow potatoes for Deschutes Brewery for their French fries. And, um, that's when he started leasing more acreage and and growing more and more. Um, and by the time, so, I mean, you know, he was feeding 150 families a week through the CSA and then, you know, two or three farmers markets a week. Um, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a it's it's a really high intensity system. You need a lot of people to do it that way. So he had a lot of volunteers every week. I was one of those like willing volunteers. Um, I was just in it for the husband, though. Um, I was just trying to get me a husband <laughs> worked out. <laughs> I, joke that I was looking for a sugar daddy. <laughs> married a farmer. <laughs> That's totally a bad joke. So, so by the time we were like the last year we were at Juniper jungle farm, you know, he had probably five different leases and he was spread across five different farms trying to stitch together enough land to do what he was doing. And it was just, it was chaos. And so it was very clear. We needed to find a larger piece of contiguous farmland and you can't find that near bend. Right. Um, It's It's all fractured. It's super fractured. Um, It's still EFU land. And we could definitely talk about what I think about all that. Let's,
0: let's do, what is EFU?
1: EFU, exclusive farm use.
0: It's a thing that has really kept Oregon from becoming a California or an Idaho.
1: Yes, and there's, you know, uh, it's good that we've got EFU designation and we're really trying to protect that, but um, it's tricky when you get into a region like Bend, that's, uh, you know, EFU land, 80% of the parcels in that district are 10 acres or less. Yep. So, um, you know, there is a handful of uh, vegetable farms growing like we used to grow, producing a lot of food on small parcels like that. Most of them are not actually agricultural families, um, but it's a really handsome tax break that you get with the EFU designation. So people are preserving, um, they are using irrigation waters uh, to preserve their EFU designation to get those really handsome tax breaks. Yeah. So...
0: And another thing that EFU protects is that you can't break up a 160-acre parcel um, to something smaller. And that's what we see definitely, like, if you head towards Boise, you'll see a lot of ground that that was farmland a few years ago, and now it's subdivisions. Yeah. And I don't know all their land use laws. I'm not a land use attorney. Yeah. But they don't have those same protections. So you can take something, you know, 160-acre cornfield, and you can bust it up into you know 500 houses that look very much like the one that's on both sides of it yeah um and we've got to have places to live but we've got to have food to feed people yeah and food comes from acreage what you're talking about with the with the contiguous land and the scalability has a lot to do with the efficiency of a ranch if you have to or farm if you have to travel your equipment to another place that, you know, is miles away, yeah. you're losing efficiency in a tremendous way in an area where, yeah. you know, you don't have much margin to begin with.
1: Yeah. Growing vegetables is not like a, a big margin business.
0: Sure. I mean, so, how much does somebody pay for, you know, like a head of broccoli, <laughs> you know? Man, it, they'll, it,
1: they'll haggle with you at the farmer's market for it. <laughs> there are some days I'd be out in the field harvesting kale and I would be like, if any... <laughs> mother <laughs> haggles me on the price of this kale today i'm gonna lose it no i mean so i mean so yeah like we were figuring it out like we were figuring those years were pivotal in us figuring out how to scale farming yeah and we learned a lot in those first few years we did not make any money in those first two you know x amount of years chris has accumulated equipment every year um and we've been able to keep going but that scale wasn't wasn't working right and we did need to consolidate and that was what pushed us to be like we need to find a larger piece of farmland somewhere and farming in bend is actually significantly harder than it is here like we're close together in mileage but we do drop in elevation when you come into this valley here and so we have a longer growing season and typically like you know every year you're getting some sort of surprise but typically we have a mostly frost-free summer So a lot of these crops, you know, that you you really need that full season from, say, uh, June through at least August, if not mid-September of no frost. Yep. um, We can have that here. So this is what I would call prime agricultural lands, Jefferson County. And and so when we moved here, you know, the farming model really started to change. So we stopped doing CSA, we stopped doing farmer's market, and we are really focused on becoming wholesale growers. Yep. And that's been the journey, um, you know, since we moved to Madras in 2017.
0: That's a hard thing for people to do is to make that transition. And one of the hardest things about it is all the relationships that you developed with Mm -hmm. people, with your customers, Mm -hmm. when you were at that smaller level. Mm -hmm. You don't want to give up on that. Yeah. You know, those are your friends. Those are the people that supported you to get you to where you are. Yeah. But it's also not necessarily where you're going. Like you have to break away from that at some point.
1: You know, and what we acknowledged and and saw was already happening, which is fantastic, which is that that style of market farming, it's often the gateway for young or new farmers yep. to get into farming. Sure. You can do it on small acreage, you don't need a lot of equipment. Um, it's the perfect training grounds. A lot of people will stay there. Like you can you can grow that, get really efficient at that, and really pump out a lot of produce. Like my friends down in California um, you know, they are farming on eight acres, and they're probably doing around five hundred, five hundred and fifty thousand dollars of produce sales a year. Amazing. So, like that style of farming, like you can really, you can make that professional. There are a lot of people though that like you, that's your gateway to get you in, and then like a farmer like Chris, you know, he has he's evolved from that to learning the skill set to really grow a lot of food at scale, and that's a different skill set. It's different infrastructure. It's different equipment different mindset different relationships so um, we saw that there's a lot more market farmers evolving and a lot more people trying to get into those farmers markets i think that that, that niche of of producing food is being well filled but like what we don't see a ton of is we don't see a ton of farmers young farmers potentially learning how to do i'll say specifically organic agriculture at a much bigger scale right. which is what we're doing here
0: Yeah. Why is it important to you to farm organically?
1: Mm. Whether you use the word organic or not, I think one of the greatest ways to produce food is trying to do it in nature's image, like trying to create your systems Yeah, in nature's image, like really following what would be natural processes for normal ecosystems health. And organic is just this like word for natural farming systems. Right. And now it is a regulated term. So it has that layer of things on it. So, you know, the word organic is just one that we use that most of the population understands what that means. So most of the population understands what organic is, is that you're not using certain pesticides, certain herbicides, um, certain fungicides, I will say that the organic standards does allow for the use of certain things that we don't use. Right. So it's less about the word organic. It's more about like the, the, you know, we are definitely a beyond organic. So when I, you know, first started, uh, volunteering on Chris's first farm, what actually attracted me the most was that he was farming, uh, based on biodynamic principles. hmm and that's a whole rabbit hole. But, you know, biodynamics is this, is is a, is a form of natural farming systems that, um, I mean, you're taking into account, you know, you're looking at your farm as its own microcosm, its own ecosystem, and you want to create uh, a form of self-sustainability within that system. So, you know, ideally, we're not bringing any inputs in that we need for fertility, and there's really no waste of the system that we're having to dispose of.
0: So it's a lot of crop rotation, using different animals mm-hmm. to, to propagate different forage species. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, ideally taking a crop, um, a harvested crop from all of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, and yeah. letting the animal, letting the, both the cover cropping system and the integration of livestock is key in biodynamics. Um, you know, and now people are using this word like regenerative agriculture is becoming like more of a term people are using, but in biodynamics, which was like really our first love, (laughs) um, the integration of livestock on your farming ecosystem is absolutely critical for ecosystems
0: health. The first person to use the word biodynamic, um, with me was, uh, was Stephen Smith after he was down here and, uh, God bless his heart. He was trying to explain it because I was like, what, what, what kind of hipster term is this biodynamic? And, uh, And he, 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 drank he tried, late. he tried. He <laughs> goes, uh, um, I'll never forget it's like this the
1: stars and the moon. Uh, and no.
0: The... <laughs> he said, it's like the original organic farming. I was like, I'm pretty sure farming was the original organic farming, dude. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? He was trying, totally, you know, I'm, I'm totally. beating up on him here, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was funny. Um, <laughs> but you know, as an example, think of like animal and crop rotation. So you have some plants that fix nitrogen in the soil Mm -hmm. you have some plants that fix carbon in the soil Mm -hmm. you have some animals like chickens that scratch up the surface and chicken manure has different properties than say pig manure and pigs reach a different level of soil surface when they're disturbing it and and foraging in it and then you have cattle that do an entirely different thing they've got a
1: whole world of fungus and bacteria in their rumen totally yeah chicken poop is really high in boron There's a few different nutrients that that chicken poop is really high in. That's just like incredible as a fertilizer.
0: Right. Boron uh, also makes the finest fly rods in the world. Hey. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: We need more boron. (laughs) (laughs) More chickens.
0: Yeah. No. uh,
1: No, it's, you know, and it's like biodynamic. So. You know, you want to have this like our, our, our goal is to have a closed loop farming system. So we're producing the fertility that this land needs for optimum health. And then the land is producing everything that we need to sustain all the beings that are living on this land for their optimal health. And that's humans and animals and like the greater community. Sure. So it's definitely like it's, it's mindset about like, like like true health, like true wealth. And, and,
0: and people listening to this, they're like, okay, it's a closed loop, but you're taking a harvest. So yeah. like something is coming off the land. So what is that thing? Yeah, And this is A really interesting thing to talk about right now because that thing that is coming off the land isn't actually coming off the land. It's coming out of the atmosphere. Yeah. What you're bringing off of it is sequestered carbon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like, you know, photosynthesis is magic. I think about this all the time. Like we are just harvesting the sun. Right. That If you're a good farmer, if you're a good rancher, you're just like you're you're optimal. You're photosynthesizing optimally. Yeah. That's your goal. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, the first exposure I had to biodynamics was, well, I'll add that we are currently drinking this biodynamic wine.
0: It's very good.
1: It's very nice, yeah. right? It's got something something special. But I worked at a, at a winery in Santa and Cruz.
0: Just so the folks know. Yes. Where but, did this come from? So
1: this came from Haiyu Winery in Hood River. Yeah.
0: And How's Haiyu spelled?
1: H-I-Y-U. Okay. And Nate um, in China who started hi you are really special people they're really um i mean they are craftsmen and craftswomen, and they care deeply about like the land that they steward and the wine that they make so and shout
0: out to those guys for Hi-Yu making a really, wine really nice yeah really nice wine
1: we really feel fortunate yeah. to um we sell them um hay for their animals and some straw for their bedding and um Yeah, they always hook it up.
0: So animal agriculture is part of their viniculture. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, they integrate the sheep and the pigs and the cattle into the entire system. And their wine and their grapes do fantastically. And their farm just looks like such a magical haven. Um, That's awesome. And so my first exposure to biodynamics was through wine. So a lot of people are first exposed to it through wine. And, you know, the wine business is all about terroir. It's all about that, like, essence of place that it is hard to put a word to it, but there is something geographically expressed in that product coming off of that land. And so it does make sense that, you know, people who are very into wines are familiar with biodynamics because biodynamics is all about creating this really healthful, like vitality-rich land that expresses itself in, in the food coming off of that land. And so my first, like, aha moment with it was, Um, we were doing uh, a tomato testing. Um, The winemaker, he had us taste a tomato that had been farmed on the same piece of ground next to this other tomato, but it had been farmed organically and just sort of like in a normal system. And then he had us taste this tomato that was grown biodynamically, same land. And there was absolutely just something like you could not describe that was like different about the vitality of this tomato. They're both beautiful, great tomatoes, but that was sort of like the day that I felt like I tasted, um, a difference in vitality, I guess, which sounds so hippie, but like, I swear I'm like a very legit agriculturalist too.
0: (laughs) I think any agriculturalist is part hippie. Yeah. And I find the same thing with the hunters that I admire the most.
1: Yeah. There's some spirit in all of it. Sure. Yeah.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm occasionally guilty of it myself and I'll make fun of everybody. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all along the way. Myself included. Um, but no, that, uh, what was that, that term you used? Terroir? hmm Am I saying that right?
1: Yeah. Terroir is a French word, which, what does it mean in English? Or what would the translation be? Like, I think it is... Um, Maybe it is just like essence of place. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's very interesting. I've I've never heard that before, but I've tried to describe it, um, especially when it comes to beef, um, which is, you know, more more of my, my personal area. Yes. But you can definitely tell a difference between cattle that came from one place or another. Yes. And... Obviously it's because they're eating different stuff like yes. they're exposed to different weather conditions, different yep. levels of stress, different mm-hmm. types of water yeah um, and all of that is reflected in the meat in the same way that all those conditions are reflected in in wine or in coffee yep. or whatever yeah. Uh, and when it comes down to something that you sense in your palate, it, it does it does make you think a little bit differently a- yeah, about the product and, and what it took to get it there yeah I looked up while we're talking what the average age of the farmer in America is and right now um, it's 57 and a half years old
1: sure yeah
0: there's a lot of communities where it's a good decade older than that sure we're we're at a precarious time 1.5 percent of the population is involved in agricultural production yeah the other 98.5% 98.5% are involved in uh, consuming agricultural consuming products. Agricultural yeah. products.
1: <laughs> it's a big population. And
0: uh, and then we have, you know, the people who are producing it are at retirement age. Yeah. This is a problem.
1: Yes. The aging, the aging population of farmers is, I mean, we are living it. Like Chris and I are definitely one of very, very few young farmers in this region. In Jefferson County, this is the second largest um, irrigation district in all of Oregon. Like, this is farming central. And I would say the average age of the farmer here is definitely more into the 60s.
0: Yeah. I tell people that uh, that anyone is never more than, than seven meals away from anarchy.
1: <laughs> For real. Like, the pandemic, I, there were, like, real crystal clear moments where I was like, oh, my God, maybe people will, like, get it now. Yeah. No,
0: <laughs> no, not even for a second. You know, they, they got mad at like <gasps> FedEx or no, something.
1: No, they just ordered more from Thrive Market and yeah. had it delivered. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but if you, if you change that and you change it from meals to something that we need a lot more like air. So let's say that you are now limited on how much air you can breathe. Yeah. Um, what would you believe in more than needing to breathe? Like basically nothing. Yeah. You know, if I hold yeah. my breath for a minute, I will do anything to take another breath. Yeah. My beliefs have gone away. Yeah. So what's in between eating and breathing? Uh, probably water. Water. And water is a major concern for you guys. Yeah. Tell me about that.
1: Yes. Well, the long and the short of it. We'll start short and then I'm sure we'll get long. So when we farmed in Bend from 20 say chris started farming you know 2011 2012 maybe even earlier than that up until 2017 we were a part of an irrigation district that was a senior rights irrigation district so water in the west is all founded upon this doctrine of prior appropriation and that is essentially just like a kind of like a first come first serve the first irrigation districts established are the most senior rights holders which means ultimately matters the most because when resources become constrained Um, their rights are honored first. And then as you go down that chain of, uh, you know, priority down to the most junior irrigation districts, um, like ours, um, you're the first to get cut. So, so we were part of that senior irrigation district. Uh, when we first were farming in Bend and water was just free flowing we never thought about it which is crazy because we do live in the desert like even if you're in Bend like it just was crazy how free-flowing water was looking back on it with the perspective I have now we had more than we could have used and in fact there were times we had way more than we could use and we were like definitely building like you know little ponds that we probably you know we're not supposed to but we had such an over yeah we had so much water
0: I got in trouble for that once.
1: Yeah. I mean, I get it, but I'm also like, it's here on my land. Yeah.
0: I I just wanted to, uh, I took an excavator out and I dug a hole in a pasture. Yeah. You got to deal with it. And, uh, And it it wasn't in a drainage. It wasn't a crick going through it. I just dug a hole in the field. Yeah. um, Which is 100% legal. (laughs) And water got in it. Yeah. Right? But that's Kate Brown's water. That's not my water. (laughs) So somebody drove past, Uh, saw some of Kate Brown's water in my hole. Yeah. um, And I had to go talk to the water master. And it was this big thing. Yeah. And it... You know, it turned out to be a legal thing. Yeah. Um I should have done the research ahead of time to make sure that it was legal, but sure. it turned out to be fine. Right. Um but yeah, if it uh collects like yeah. you know, it, I can't tell the state, hey, come get your water out of my hole. Yeah. Um,
1: Well, it's. I mean, the more I learn about our irrigation districts, the more I'm like, well, they don't regulate. So, like, they can't actually get mad at you for holding on to more water than you're allocated because nobody's regulating that shit in that district. And it's
0: difficult to meter as well.
1: Well, okay. So, okay. So, here's the thing. So, COI, the irrigation district we were in, Central Oregon Irrigation District, which is like most of the Bend region, right? Senior water rights holders. So, then we moved to Jefferson County, Madras, where we are now, where we farm and are now. And we are a junior rights holder. Um, This district, though, um, like there's been studies done. And, um, you know, so this district, which is the North Unit Irrigation District, we have like a 94% efficiency rate with our irrigation water use. COI, the most senior water rights holder, um, uses the most irrigation waters. They have like a 40-something percent efficiency rate with their irrigation waters. And like I have seen, so here's the thing. We farmed in COI. We knew how that worked. We Like, we didn't have to order water. Water was just always flowing. And then when we moved here, it was a completely new system of water management we had to learn. Uh, you know, we had two and a half acre feet of water um, allotted to us that season, 2017, which is our full allotment. Okay. And we really learned, like, how much more evolved um, the conservation is in this district. So, you know, they've put in a ton of investment to make this district so efficient with water. So things are very, very tightly metered here. We order in water very specifically the exact amount we're going to need for say two wheel line irrigation sets. Um, and it's very closely metered.
0: And two and a half acre feet is not a lot. Um, so one acre foot of water for, for the folks that don't know is if you take an an acre, which is a two-dimensional measurement, yeah. and then a foot deep, and that's the amount of water. Yep. Um, that's 325,850.943 U.S. liquid gallons.
1: Sounds like a lot. but when it comes Sounds to like to a lot, but irrigating. when it comes to irrigating,
0: um, yeah. it's not even a drop in the bucket. It's a drop in the Olympic-sized swimming pool. Two and, yeah. and a half acre feet is nothing.
1: So when we were in COI, so COI for perspective. So say our uh, North Unity Irrigation District, our irrigation allotment at 100% is two and a half acre feet of water, which we had in 2017. The COI uh, Irrigation District's allotment is really more like five to six acre feet of water. Yeah. Um, and this is, again, in like a very urban area. Um, they do have more sandy soils. so You do need some more water to like make that water go further in sandy soils, But um, five to six acre feet of water is like gluttonous. I mean, here's the thing. It's actually like eight to nine acre feet of water. But like after transmission loss, it becomes five to six acre feet of water to the patron. So the first year we farmed here in 2017, we had our full allotment, which was two and a half acre feet of water. And I mean, we had to be smart about how we irrigated, but we were able to grow our alfalfa, all of our orchard and Timothy grass, all of the vegetables we could have wanted to grow, um We were doing everything and right. every every acre was irrigated here. The next year we got our first water cut back. And then the next year we got another water cut back. So we went from like two and a half to like 2.2 to then like 1.7, 1.5. And then last season we started the season with one acre foot of water, which was terrifying. Um, and then they've never, I don't think they've done this, I forget, it'd been like Maybe it was a never in the history of the district. They did two mid-season cuts. So you started the season with one acre foot of water. And then in July, they cut our water twice within a month. Which when you're a farmer working with like not enough water, like you have your acreage planned down to the last drop of water you're going to have to irrigate it with. So to go into your season with a plan and then have that plan allotment cut twice, it was like chaos, honestly, in Jefferson County. And then, so last year we started at one acre foot of water. It was cut back to 0.8 acre feet of water by the mid-season. Then this season, 2022, we started the season with 0.5 acre feet of water. So less than 20% of um, our normal allotment. And here's the kicker. You have to pay for 100% of your water allotment. So every year we've had, say, one acre foot delivered or half an acre foot delivered. You're paying the irrigation district for 100% of
0: your allotment. So you're paying for a product that you need that you're not getting. No. Uh.
1: The situation for farmers is like really... Well, it's why I care so much, which is why kind of accidentally, um, reluctantly, uh, but out of necessity, I have become very much an agricultural advocate um, because these water issues, they are man, the impact, the human impact and the ecological impact is ginormous. When you take a huge farming community and you take away the one thing they need to do, the one thing they need, which is water, um, it has huge social, economic, and environmental impacts. And a lot of this dry up has been unsupported. And, you know, here's the thing. I think that as humans have chosen to um, develop and create lives in areas like the high desert of Oregon or Las Vegas or LA, all these places that like are water deserts. We have to acknowledge that like we are partaking in a system where like, you know, it's not, it is not natural to actually uh, like irrigate here. Right. But what I find so short-sighted about all of this that people don't really understand is that a huge amount of the irrigation waters allocated to this region, which are coming out of our river ecosystem. We should be using very smart. Um, they're being allocated to non-agricultural uses. Right. A huge amount of water.
0: So I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're, if you get an acre foot, 325,000 gallons of water, say it's a, it's a good year and you get your two and a half acre feet, still less than a million gallons. Right. Right. The typical 150-acre golf course in America uses 200 million gallons of water a year in irrigation. Yeah. Okay. I'm not throwing shade at golf. That's not (laughs) what I'm doing.
1: Maybe we put in some turf. (laughs) However,
0: comma, pause for effect. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Golf doesn't feed the family. It doesn't. Yeah. Do you have any idea how many people, because family farms is feeding?
1: Oh, my God. Oh my god, I should do I should try and do that math. I did recently the amount of tonnage of food we produce on this farm. Okay. Now, uh, okay, so I'll try and differentiate both uh human food animal food. So, um I would say at this point um we are producing approximately 200 tons of human food. Okay. Um a year. That would be conservative.
0: Yep.
1: Um and then probably on top of that, another 250 tons of animal food, which wow. then becomes, you know, human food. Um, and we're doing it all organically. We're doing it – I call this conservation farmers. So, I mean, like we make our management decisions here based on not just the, the the economic, you know, equation. We're also making our decisions based on like our ecological impact. So when it comes to <laughs> – Okay, let me tell you how many golf courses there are in Central Oregon. There are approximately 25 or 26 golf courses in, like, the Greater Bend region. Um, we are in a desert. That's a lot of golf courses in the desert. And then, um, you know, there's been this proposal. I've been very vocal and public about opposing a, a development which has actually been contested for 17 years. Um, it's called the Thornburg Resort. And, um, it, it's a development which would be building, um, a lot of, um, you know, s- you know, one night lodging units, um, a clubhouse, three new golf courses, and something like six, you know, private lakes, all with, um, primarily groundwater. And I think there is some irrigation water that is a part of the, like, trade system to get the groundwater. And um, it's been so heavily contested, and this developer just keeps pushing for it. Um, We don't need three new golf courses here. You know, the farming population uh, is struggling so hard. It's just so wild to think about in these times of extreme resource constraint uh, what our societal priorities are. And, I mean, there will come a time probably in which those primal needs of, like, safe water, safe food, and clean air like become things that people really understand it's like the few things we truly need
0: so you and your husband with less than a million gallons of water a year based on some quick math here you're producing all the food that basically would give people all the food that they need one person for 200,000 days (laughs) a year yeah yeah yeah. So we the, grow a
1: lot of food with not very much water. Yeah. So, I mean, so we're I, very efficient.
0: 200,000 by yeah. 365, and yeah, that's how many people you're feeding.
1: And, you know, we've refined what crops we grow here, understanding what our constraints are. So, right. we are picking the crops that are going to be resilient to our situation here, um, which, you know, like, again, like, our gateway into farming was vegetables. Like, we love to grow vegetables, uh, but we've always incorporated animal agriculture because it's, like, just a fundamental of having an ecosystem of optimal Health. Yep. Um, but as water has gone away, um, what has become very clear is like to have the greatest ecological impact here, given the context that we're in right now, um, increasing our animal agriculture is our farm's answer to survival. Um, so, yeah, this season we were contracted to grow probably 40 to 45 acres of potatoes. We only planted 10 acres, which Chris kind of like even snuck that in. I was like, okay, I think we can do like four to five. And he just planted 10 because, you know, he just wants to grow potatoes.
0: Potatoes are a tricky crop.
1: Yeah, they are. You have to be very skilled to grow potatoes well.
0: But one of the funniest things about potatoes to me is that they love nothing more than a place that used to be sagebrush.
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we always, um, before we come in with the potatoes, you know, a part of our organic crop rotation is we won't return to a parcel for at least five to seven years with the same crop, right? Okay. Yep. With any crop.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yep. So if we did potatoes, you know, one year, we won't come back to that land with potatoes for five to seven years. Mm -hmm. So like that, yeah, that, that time of dormancy that it's probably had on a sagebrush land um, benefits the potatoes. Yeah. They're, they're prone to the the fungal blights, but yeah, it's, you know, um, You know, our and it's just like a funny thing to touch on though, because like we do live in this time where like there's some very slick marketing going on to make people feel like animal agriculture is the problem and um, cow farts, yeah, cow farts
0: are the problem. (laughs) Like, no, it's
1: not all of all the other unhinged ex you know extraction of resources that we have yet to deal with,
0: yeah,
1: no, um, you know, and it's like what's what's so funny about that. You know that very loud but small population of people um, really talking down on animal ag. I think that they live very, very far away from the land. Um, I think that they care. I think that the they if think if they were to spend more time with ranchers like your family or farmers like us, they would find far more in common with us than differences. Oh, totally. And it's just they they have a misunderstanding of how animal agriculture in a thriving system works for sure there are negative models of animal ag i don't support i don't support putting a bunch of pigs on a cement floor in a building and producing pork that way but is there a way to produce pork uh outside in nature's image with grains grown locally and with the least environmental impact possible for sure so we're trying to do more of that um so anyways it's just funny that you know we were vegetable farmers and like we saw our trajectory as being more and more of that you know, organic vegetables. But really, to have the greatest ecological impact here, it actually is asking us to do more animal agriculture and to do it responsibly. So if we're going to raise cattle, you know, we're going to do it holistically. If we're going to raise pigs, uh, we're going to grow all of our own grains here organically. And we're going to feed our pigs, you know, uh, a feed mix that is non-GMO and it is not sprayed with herbicides and pesticides and Uh, Has kind of the lowest stress life possible. So, um,
0: your pigs are having a blast. When we walked around (laughs) earlier, like, they're happy pigs. They're running around. They're having a a ball. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All of our animals. No no fence can hold them. (laughs) They've yeah. (laughs) They don't give a shit about fences. (laughs) They live such a good life. And it really is our our mission to just really, like, uh, just steward that. Like, we care deeply for our animals. Um, We do. care deeply for this land and we've had people ask us like you know given the the really difficult water realities here do you consider moving somewhere where perhaps there's more water and no it doesn't really cross our mind you know I I have a sense of loyalty to place and I feel like you you don't run away from your problems like you you dig in and you try and be a part of the solution and honestly like globally like (laughs) You know, you're not going to run away from problems. It's just going to be a different problem in a different place. So, you know, here we have a big problem to solve, which is mismanagement of irrigation water. Um, There's been studies done in this basin in which there has been identified there is enough water to serve the river ecosystem and the farmers if we were to be uh, managing water more efficiently here. Yeah. Uh, so it just it's a management problem and really those problems like I've kind of fought and rallied and raged against things locally to really find out that it is state level legislation that holds up um, smarter use of water so very reluctantly I am like dipping my toes into state level um, you know drafting of some new legislation to look at beneficial use.
0: Okay well there's a you know, the governor's job might, <laughs> Do might be. Do not. Nope. Nope. Nope.
1: Nope uh, new, <laughs> I don't want office. I just want to like new, write some legislation new, and like sneak it into the right new, person. New and, like, cake? Yeah. Huh? Hell no. <laughs> don't want it. Don't want it.
0: At some point though, yeah. um, a lot of people step into that role for that reason. I like know. Like they because no one is coming.
1: I know. When you actually, when you take a good look at who is in legislation making rules, you're like, oh no. Yeah. We got to get some people in there. Yeah. It's not the brightest people. It's just people who just ended up in the legislature. They're not that intelligent. Like, I think a lot of people walk around thinking that, like, we have some higher powers, like, handling things. Like, man, no, it takes a lot. It takes civic engagement. It takes care. And I think, you know, family like yours who has been in, in your area of Eastern Oregon for so long. You know, you have uh, a deep loyalty to protect place, and um, I'm new to this region here of Central Oregon, but my loyalty for this place has gotten really deep, really quick.
0: Yeah. So. Well, you're you're you have a codependency.
1: Yeah, yeah, we all do. Yeah. You know, just some people live closer to it and understand yeah. that connection more, and then you know, a lot of people. You know, it, it's, it's just, it is, it's amazing. Like, we have some groups of kids come out here from more inner city schools. And, like, I just understand, like, if they aren't exposed to nature and farming and ranching at a young age, you can go a really long time in life, like, literally not understanding where food comes from. And I was, I was very fortunate because I had a childhood where uh I was exposed to this stuff really young. Um So, you know, like I have a lot of hope in the next generation. We got to teach them. We got to show them. And, you know, we being of this age bracket, I don't know exactly how old you are, but you're in your 30s. Mm-hmm. 36.
0: 36. Yeah.
1: You and Chris are the same age. Isn't yeah. No, he's not quite 36. He'll oh. kill me. If, yeah. <laughs> 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 I just turned 32. So we are, you know, in our young 30s. Right. and And... Um, I think that there is some Patons being passed, and we have to learn how to engage
0: well, there has to be because there's a thirty year gap between the most common aged person in agriculture and us, yeah, um so in that gap, like what's gonna happen? yeah, it's like suddenly we're gonna have the keys,
1: yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like
0: well, I don't know how to drive six years.
1: yeah <laughs> man, it's literally it's on the land, and it's financially too. I read a statistic about how this is the largest financial transfer of wealth like ever in the history of humans, Mm. right? Like um, I don't even know what those numbers mean. They're just like make-believe numbers, but like there's the largest generational transfer of wealth happening right now for the next 10 years. Yeah.
0: People who started investing in the 1950s. Yeah.
1: And what, how does that generational wealth get put to use now? So Uh, I like to be hopeful about it. Like, you know, our generation grew up with this understanding of, um, I mean, we're living through it. We're living through uh, a new pattern of fire cycles. We're living through a new reality of drought. We're living through uh, definitely just different seasons in these places that we have typically more temperate winters or more temperate summers. We're just having these extremes. So, um, you know, I'm I'm hopeful to see that money put to use. And I'm hopeful to see, you know, people really want to dive in and do this work. And, you know, yeah, like it's great to be a market farmer. We need uh, the farmers markets. We need these smaller systems of food security for sure. We definitely need people to be learning the skills to be growing food at scale. And hopefully, like somewhat alternatively to the conventional model, Um, because I don't think that that conventional model has served us.
0: Sure. And we're not just talking about animal agriculture at at this point, Yeah. because a lot of the produce that services this country that comes from the Central Valley in California, it's strip mining soil. Yes. Um, you know, and, and I'm very careful not to, not to throw stones at anybody within agriculture. You know, if somebody wants to raise cattle, you know, a, a polar opposite way of me, that's fine. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to talk trash about the dairy industry, whatever. Yeah. Um, but if you're concerned about animal agriculture and you're willing to go to the grocery store and and buy a plastic box full of spinach, you probably owe it to yourself to look at what that's doing to soil in some of the most fertile ground in our country.
1: Well, what's a hilarious part of this is that, you know, we've got this um, very slick marketing akin to the sugar industry's marketing uh, when it comes to the fake meat industry.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: So let's talk about that for a second, right? Okay, because this is being touted as a, an eco-friendly alternative for all these like well-meaning people yep. who want to do right by earth. Yep. They don't understand how the pea proteins or the chickpeas or all that shit is being produced. Yep. That is all conventional agriculture that is just like strip mining topsoil. Like it is monocropped. It is conventionally farmed. It is likely heavily, you know, pesticide and herbicide use. Um, it is pure extraction farming to create all of the protein inputs that make up those fake meat products. Uh, it's, it's just, it's hilarious. When I look side by side at a ranch like Six Ranch and like what that ecosystem would look like, and then you were to look at a field of the peas being grown for the impossible burger. And you tell me like what, what scenario looks like health on land. Right. You could not look at that pea protein field and be like, yeah, look at all that single monocrop herbicide, pesticide, agriculture. Oh, yeah. it's like a great idea.
0: Yeah. I I was, uh, (laughs) I was teaching a a little class on aquatic insects on the, on the Wallowa river on the Six Ranch, uh, a while ago and went out in the river and collected a bunch of bugs and put them in a little white tray so that people could look at them. We could talk about like some of the, the foundations of what makes a stream healthy and, you know, uh, a mayfly nymph is to the salmon, what grass is to the bison. Yeah. Right. Um, Very, very important, but we need to know about this thing. Yeah. Uh, And some of the folks that were there were like, well, you know, thank goodness. um, I heard somebody say this. They're like, thank goodness you don't have cattle in this section of the river. (gasps) And we looked over and the grass was like nine feet tall. It looked like Vietnam in there. Yeah. And I was like, what do you call that thing? Yeah. You know, it was like 20 yards away from (laughs) them. It all works together. Like you can do this correctly. Yeah. Oh, God bless their hearts. And people do agree on 90% of everything. Yeah. Um, So if you start with that, like, okay, what do we agree on? Oh, basically everything. Cool. Yeah. Um, What do we disagree on? Well, this. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, Come have a field day
1: on the farm. Like, you want to understand how this works or how we implement animals in a way that creates more vitality? Like, please let me show you. I would love to show you.
0: A lot of what you're doing out here is extremely creative. Extremely creative. Yeah. And creativity is something that's often lacking within agriculture today, and part of that is because there's an inherent risk in a field where there's no margin for failure. Yeah. I was introduced to you through what I consider to be a, a very creative um field, and that is your hat making. Yeah. Let's talk about hats. Yeah. What do you know about cowboy
1: hats? I know about cowboy hats. Well, you know, uh, my dog ate mine, and then I needed to <laughs> fix it, and then here I am. Is this
0: really how it started? It's
1: literally how it started.
0: Your dog ate your cowboy yeah, hat.
1: Yeah, man, life just sends me these little you know, and
0: then you decided, uh, instead of going down to, you know, the sports corral and buying yourself a new lid, you just make one.
1: Yeah, Well, so this is how it actually went. So yeah, no, I had a really sentimental special hat given to me. I wore it. It was my favorite hat. It was like, just became part of me. And it was definitely a pivotal time in my early twenties of just like, just exploring life and character formation. And and yeah, no, I was trying, I was trying really hard to be Canadian. I was living in Canada uh, without like a proper worker's visa. So I was working under the table. I had like three different jobs. I was working at this like really shady bar that my friends were like concerned about me working at it. <laughs> like, yeah, I could tell some stories about that place. People thought that I was running from the law. They were like, why are you here? <laughs> so yeah, and I did a bunch of jobs. I was living in Canada And, um, it really wasn't working, but I was being stubborn. And then one day I came home from one of my like three jobs, and, um, my dog Charlie had chewed up my favorite hat. And, um, Charlie. Charlie. She was, you know, a messenger. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. So she, so she chewed up my hat, and I really did. I just like, I broke down and cried, and I just was like, it's not working. Like, I'm not supposed to be Canadian. And, um, so then I literally packed up my Jeep and moved home the next day. I went back to Santa Cruz and, um, I was on this hiatus from college at the time. I was just, I don't know, I was just trying to figure out life. And, uh, but I, the chewed up hat like was just like, all right, like it's just not working. It was like just the straw that broke my back. And I just decided to move home. And, um, so I moved back. Uh, I decided to finish college and get my degree. But my, my one, my one thing was that I wanted to find a way once I fulfilled my obligations and I got that degree, I wanted to find a way to ride horses every day. That was like my only goal after school. And so I took a job in Sisters, Oregon, um, working as a wrangler and a trail guide for a stable. And part of the, you know, job description is you definitely have to look the part. So I needed to get my hat fixed up.
0: Dude wrangling. It's a tough job.
1: I mean, it's so over-romanticized. You just saddle and unsaddle 50 horses a day, and your shoulders hate you, and you're paid like $10 an hour, and people who go on the rides don't really want to ride a horse, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, it's awful. Yeah. Okay. So my first guide... I'm going to interject a story real quick, because I've never told this story on the show. My first guide job was dude wrangling. Nice. And uh, we got paid only when we were in the saddle. Okay. Um, and I think it was 7 bucks an hour. You could keep whatever tips you got, but it was 7 bucks an hour when you were in the saddle. Mm-hmm. So, kind of the biggest money you could make was by doing the 1-hour trail ride over and over again all day long. Yeah. And there was like a 1-hour, a 4-hour, and a full day. And the full day was pretty brutal because the clients would get so saddle sore and fall off. Totally and was chaos. And, totally. You know, we you don't have the best horses, right? You've got some mm-hmm. Appaloosas that like <laughs> don't want to go, and it's just this thing. So one of these Appies was named Stubby, uh-huh. and I ended up with Stubby in my string for the day. And I wanted to do eight one-hour rides You're that just day. Just flipping I'm, rides. I'm just trying to max <laughs> max it out. Like I'd ride back in, pick up a new string of tourists, and we'd go and do this one-hour loop again. And uh, it was all these folks from C- from Seattle, like inner city Seattle. And this gal was on Stubby and she was over the weight limit, but she refused to get on the scale. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the guy that was like taking money, like didn't want to push it with Sensitive. her. Like she had a huge amount of attitude. Yeah. Um, so Stubby was already struggling along and there was kind of a steep ish section of the trail, but the trails, it, it's a trail, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, 12 inches wide or whatever. <laughs> and she goes... He's walking on the side of the trail. And I said, he's walking on both sides of the trail. You know, he's wider than the trail is. And she was leaning in towards the hill. So he had to lean out away to like balance. Oh, yeah. And like they kept fighting this fight and then she fell off. Oh, it's a
1: long way down. Right.
0: The yeah. ride must go on. So I sent the rest of the clients with, <laughs> with them. And I'm like, I'm going to get her back on this horse. I'm 14 years old. I think I'm the strongest human <laughs> since the Incredible Hulk.
1: No mounting block out there. No,
0: God, no. (laughs) So we get like one leg up into the stirrup, and that was a chore. And then I start pushing on the only surface that I can. And I am elbow deep in this woman's ass trying to push her up on this horse the horse has wants nothing to do with it like it is stubby is not helping me he has zero interest in this woman as a 14 year old
1: you don't even know what to do dude. it's so
0: horrible like i don't want to be involved in any of this i just wanted to wear like it's not worth seven dollars an hour no no i just wanted to make some money for the summer and you know work my way into guiding And, uh, you know, eventually we give up like this isn't going to work and we have to walk back and it's a couple miles and walking wasn't her thing. Um, oh dude, it was so brutal. That's, uh, that is
1: wrangling. That is dude wrangling. Dude wrangling in a nutshell. Yeah. I did that for not very long. (laughs) 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 I, uh, Nope. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I could make more money waitressing. So I was like, all right. So no, but I mean, it worked out because ultimately, like I ended up in sisters and I was doing that in the morning times. And then by, you know, midday, uh, I was, um, well, so I, I had found this hat maker who was willing to, uh, take a look at my hat, see if we could fix it up. Okay. Turns out to be way too far gone. Like you can't bring a hat back from like dog.
0: So were you, were you guiding with this chewed up out on? I
1: don't I remember what I had is I think I had like some shitty wool as an interim. Okay. And then, and then, yeah, the hat maker was like, yeah, yeah, no, we can't bring that back, but we can recreate it. Like that's what a custom hat maker does. It's like whatever you want, like we can create it. Yeah. So we recreated uh, my hat. I wish I still had that first hat. I honestly do not know what happened to it. But, um, so I started, so I, I built that first hat, you know, really just observing this hat maker. And I just was sort of like, you know, can I keep coming back? And um, he said sure <laughs> he was just working by himself in his little garage shop and I think he liked the company and thought it was endearing I was interested um, so I worked with him so it was really just like a observe observe for a really long time and then he started letting me get my hands on the material and I started building hats and this was in 2013 so I was working with him and um, you know it's cute it's a connection to actually my relationship with my husband Chris because his hat became sort of the impetus for me to leave that first mentor shop and start on my own hmm. chris's hat was the first hat that i asked that teacher you know i'd like to do this one 100 by myself like if i purchase the material from you like can i do this because i want to trade this farmer for a vegetable csa yeah which that man could not wrap his head around like this beautiful hat being like equivalent to some like vegetables right. like it just i was like no this is gold So, um, so Chris's first hat was actually, and I have it hanging in the showroom. Mm. It was really the impetus. I put this, I had a, a a wood burning pen and I always had this idea that like when I can build my own hats, like I'm going to put this four direction compass brand into all my hats and I wanted to do that, but I didn't have a brand. And so I had this wood burning pen. And so like in Chris's first hat is this like terribly etched four direction compass, um, with this wood burning pen. And that was the hat that ultimately uh, kind of like started to like push me out of working with that first mentor. And I started to accumulate some of the most primitive materials I would need to build my own hats. And um, at the time I was living in this apartment in a horse barn and the owners of that property, they were like, well, like, you know, the, the wash stall of the barn where you just had the like, you know, rack that you tie the horses up. It was like a fancy little washroom for the horses. They were like, well, you can use that. So I built a table on that wash rack and I put my first few pieces of equipment in that washroom and I started building hats out of it. And that was in 2014.
0: How poetic that a wood-burned compass and a hat ended up (laughs) giving you direction.
1: Well, and that was the thing as I was just sort of like, it was this symbol of like, I just had this mentality and I still have this mentality of like, it's cheesy, but it's just like, trust that inner compass. Like, I can explain sometimes some of the decisions that I've made, um, but, like, when I am tuned in and really listening to something, like, bigger than me and deep inside of me, um, it has led me to these, like, like really amazing things that I'm now doing. So, I wanted to keep that close to mind. Like, trust the compass. Like, yeah.
0: Give me a five-minute rundown on what it takes to make a felt hat.
1: Yeah. So to make a fine felt hat, you have to start with the finest felt and the finest felt is a beaver felt. Yeah. So I have worked with beaver felts for the entire time I've been building hats. So that would be, I think this is my ninth season building hats. And, you know, and I worked with actually, you know, I, I blocked up some wool felts and I've blocked up some rabbit blends, um, and they're fine. What does blocking mean? Blocking is to take like the raw felt body and then um, you get it started on a wooden block. So uh, you can't see what I'm pointing to, but I have all these wooden blocks up on my shelves. A lot of them are vintage and it's the first step of the process to to really just stretch this fur felt over the block. And you start out with sort of like a general size and a general shape based on either the customer you're building for or ultimately the style you're going to go for. Yep. There's different blocks for different styles. So I've got some dress blocks and I've got some Western blocks. And then I've got some just some like, you know, kind of middle of the ground yeah. styles.
0: So they're similar to like the last that a shoe would get built on. Yeah,
1: super yeah. similar to the last that like a boot is built on yep. or any kind of shoe really. So, I mean, and, and the way that I build hats is very much akin to the way that they've been building hats since the 1800s. So I'm not super sophisticated in equipment. It's really just steam, Uh, you know, your wooden blocks, your wooden flanges, which is the piece that you shape your brim on. Uh, I've got a crown iron. The crown iron here is actually from the early 1900s, and it's just been kind of reworked. But the basis of that machine is an early 1900s machine. Right now I do all of my brim plating by hand. I have a new machine I've been wanting to get for like eight years, and it's arriving in September
0: Ooh, exciting.
1: It's a plating machine. So this thing I've done by hand, I'll, I'll have a machine to do here for the first time in nine years. But it's, it's really just, it's the process of making a hat and, and working with felt in general is a process of uh, steaming the fur fibers so that those fur fibers open up and become pliable. And then you do what you need to do, whether it's blocking, you know, stretching it over a block or, you know, once you've gotten to the finishing stage, you steam to then shape. It makes that kind of rigid felt open and pliable. And then as the felt cools, those fur fibers kind of knit back together and hold that structure you've just created. So it's, it's heat, steam. It's you know ironing and compression. And then it's uh, sculpting. I do most of my shaping by hand. So it's sculpting.
0: And the shaping of a cowboy hat is, uh, is such a signature. Yeah. And it's personal. Yeah. It's regional. It shows, um, if if you're actually cowboying, it shows the type of cowboying that you're doing. Yes, it is. Um, I was in St. Martin with some <laughs> fishing clients years ago. And there was a guy at a bar in St. Martin in the Caribbean. And he's wearing a cowboy hat. And uh, I said, I bet I can tell you where that guy's from. They're totally. Like, they're like, do you know him? I said, no. But based on that hat, he's from Western Montana. Totally. And. They're like, no freaking way. And this lady that I was with went over there and like tugged on his arm and was like, excuse me, sir. Weird question, but where are you from? And he's like, oh, I'm from Bozeman.
1: Yep. It's
0: like, dude, you can tell. Yeah. You can tell not even, not only the state, but like the region. You can tell so much about somebody by the shape of the hat and the type of the of the hat that they're wearing it's man a, it's is it true thing. man
1: when you uh you know as a hat maker i do see i have a lens that this lo- i look at the world through and it's hats you know and when i see really shitty hats i'm like yeah. i'm not saying i disrespect you i'm just saying i could respect you more if you had a nicer hat on
0: <laughs> and i got to talk about the historical importance of this a little bit yeah especially in oregon yeah um so john jacob astor founded an expedition uh, just a couple of years after lewis and clark and he sent one, um, one group overland to the mouth of the Columbia and one group around South America in a boat to the mouth of, of the Columbia and founded Astoria. At the time, he was the richest man in the world. Yeah. If you changed his currency to today's currency, um, he would still be the richest man in the world. Mm-hmm. And he gained that wealth through real estate and through trading furs in New York City. If it were not for his expedition that founded Astoria... Um, which later turned out to be the route taken for the Oregon Trail and the California Trail. Yeah. So it forged the way for westward expansion. Yeah. Um, it also placed a flag on the west coast. So without that expedition, the west coast, everything west of the Rockies, would have either ended up French, Spanish, yeah. British, or Canadian. Yeah. Um, like completely changed the face of the country, and it was all driven by the felt hat, the beaver felt hat. Yeah. Isn't like, that incredible? The, the taste of fashion in Britain at the time, yeah, like right before the war of 1812, that changed the rest of the history of the world because of felt hats. Dude. And here you are carrying on the torch today in I America. I love that
1: you know this history because really few people do actually know that history about really the establishment of the West and what a critical role the cowboy hat had in it. Um, it, I feel very proud to do this and I'm very proud of the materials I use. There's still a tradition of trapping, you know, trapping is still an important part of conservation. And, and honestly, like uh, I'm very proud to build a product that is a beyond a lifetime product. Uh, The reason I have really settled in using this material after having worked with wool and rabbit, is that uh, these hats can be like br- like just brutalized, like used very very heavily um, in all conditions of rain and snow and you know heavy sun exposure, um, and they can get reblocked, reshaped, and relived a hundred times over. Yeah. So this material is just like I mean it, it is truly beyond our lifetime material, and I would rather build somebody one or two hats they're gonna have forever then just every year you're replacing that wool that's going to break down and become trash in a landfill yep. so
0: yeah so when i hit this little red button <laughs> we are going to measure me for a hat and yes. this is i think i think it's been five or six years since we first met and yeah. i th- and you were doing like a hat seminar or something you've got an airstream trailer that you drag around teach people how to make hats in yeah it's the coolest freaking thing <laughs> um I've been thinking about it since that time, and I think I know the hat that I want. I'm so excited about it.
1: If you were like, I want a fedora, <laughs> I would be like,
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you're you're one-man band. You can't yeah. make hats for the whole world. Yeah. It's, this is a specialized product. But if people want to get on the list, there's a way for them to do it.
1: Yeah, so the way I've shaped my life so that I can both participate in our farm and ranch – and do these things that like uh, also are sole purposes, like my, my craft of hat making. Uh, I love this work. It is definitely like a beloved trade, uh, but I have other things in my life I want to focus on too. So anyways, the way I've structured this business so that I can do uh, both is that um, I open up for orders uh, typically in the fall, uh, fall, early winter. Um, I'll sort of fill up my production schedule for the year ahead at that time. I've been very fortunate that um, those spots sell out. And um, so, yeah, you you get on the website. You sign up for my mailing list. Um, I let my mailing list know when I'm going to open for orders. And then you place your order then. You set down a deposit for the hat. And then what that sets in motion is the process of us working together to build you a fully custom hat. So it's custom in that it's custom fitted to your exact head shape which we'll go through that process. And it's also custom design. So it's, you know, whatever color you choose, whatever style you choose. Um, we stamp the sweatbands with either like your name or some sort of like meaningful quote or memento. Um, and then all the trim details. Like if you want, you know, a ribbon trim or a cool leather hat band or a cool beaded hat band. So uh, yeah, we work one-on-one to, to build that custom hat. Yeah. So, yeah. So I take orders, you know, fall, early winter, um, I sort of work with my customers through the winter, early spring to kind of get all the custom details all together. I do, you know, one big order of all my materials for the year. Better for me, better for my suppliers. Um, and then I'm busy working on hats through, you know, spring into early summer um, it's kind of been my schedule. And then that gives me, you know, the latter part of summer and the fall to really be fully present for the farm, which, you know, um, come harvest time, it is a full family affair. Yeah. My in-laws come to town and help us and our friends and come to town and help us. And I really need to be
0: your, your 18 month old is up mobbing around on a four wheeler when I pulled up. (laughs) Yeah. My son
1: Heston is in the combine (laughs) getting all the (laughs) grain put in with my husband. It's, it's a team effort. So I got to be present for that really.
0: Okay. Um, So people sign up for the newsletter. Yeah. um, And there will be a link in the podcast description um, for that. But in case You have a hard time finding that or you don't know what it is. Um, Can people do like a Google search for it?
1: Yeah. I think if you just search like Habstad Hatco. Okay. Yeah. I think I'm the only one out there with that name.
0: H-A-V-S-T-A-D. That's it. Okay. Yep. All right. Home by the sea. All right. Home by the sea. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm excited. Let's do this. Let's do it. Okay. Thank you so much, Kate. You're so
1: welcome, James.
0: I'm working on building a house this year, which is something that I know nothing about. And I love that. It's exciting. Uh, everything is a new challenge and there's lots of challenges that pop up. The other day we we're laying out rebar and getting ready to pour concrete for the foundation of the shop. That's going to be next to the house. And one of the guys that was there that was helping one of the construction crewmen, I looked over and he had a Stanley thermos sitting on the end of the trailer. I said, how do you like that thing? And he goes, Oh, I love it. I've had it for a decade. It's like, you know, if you find any environment where people are out there working hard, working hard with their hands outside, no matter the conditions, you're probably going to see a Stanley product there. It's something that just goes with that blue collar labor, because that's what this product is doing. It is out there working just as hard as you are. It's going to be there as long as you are. It's going to be there after you're done. It's something that, that I feel passionate about with every piece of gear that I take either into the woods or into the workplace, like it's gotta be able to outwork me. And I work really hard myself. If you are also a hard worker, and I'm sure that you are, then you could probably appreciate the same type of gear. If you go to stanley1913.com and you use the discount code 6 ranch that's the number 6 and the word ranch you can get 25% off just about any of their products now i encourage you to do that they're a great supporter of this show and uh great supporter of this audience again i love you guys and i just want to pass this uh this discount and the savings on to you if you want something from stanley i encourage you to get it thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.